Hi, this is Karin Zissis of ASCOA Online. Each time there's a U.S. election, speculation abounds about the role of the Latino vote. Will it decide the outcome? What will turnout be? And now, with the pandemic, what are the issues of greatest concern to this voting bloc as we head toward a U.S. election in November? Though often treated as a monolithic group, Latinos are diverse in their political opinions, much like the U.S. population as a whole. In this episode, Mark Hugo Lopez, Director of Global Migration and Demography Research at the Pew Research Center, tells my colleague Holly Sunderland why. Lopez, who heads Pew's research agenda on the U.S. Latino community, breaks down what makes this group distinct and similar to other U.S. voters, and he gets into the demographics of states like Florida and Texas. Thanks for being with us. You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latino America in Foco. America Latina in Foco. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. Well, hello, uh, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay, so I wanted to ask you about some recent polling on uh, Vice President Biden, who is now the presumptive Democratic nominee for president. A poll released April 24th showed that the percent of Latinos who support or are leaning toward Biden fell from mid-February to mid-April. And at the same time, uh, President Trump's support and lean remained the same. So what do you think could be some effective moves to bolster their support? Like, are there particular communications messages that Latino voters respond well to or policies that they are continually asking for or asking in particular uh, in 2020? Our own polling on the on, on the, the support among registered voters uh, for Biden among Latinos, for example, and this was a poll that we did April 8th to April 12th. So this is sort of in that period where Bernie Sanders had dropped out of the race, but also hadn't quite yet endorsed or was about to endorse Biden. We found that among Latinos, 63% said that they would support Biden. 23% said that they would support Trump. And there's 13% among Hispanic registered voters who say that neither or, or somebody else, or perhaps they haven't quite yet decided on their case. So I think it's important to keep in mind that that uh, Latino support still continues to be strong for the Democratic presidential nominee, um, but that there also is this support for Trump at about one in five, maybe one in four uh, Hispanic registered voters, at least as of um, early April in our most recent uh, polling. Latinos have pointed to a number of issues, though, and I think it's important to note that the issues that are of importance to Latinos oftentimes resonate with the American public. But here, particularly around COVID-19 and everything that's happening, we have found that, for example, 61% of Hispanic households say that somebody in their household has either taken a pay cut or lost their jobs. That's higher than it is for the U.S. population overall, which is at about 49%, higher than it is for whites, higher than it is for blacks. So Hispanics are also now telling us that it's harder for them to pay their bills uh, than it was, say, in a world where they didn't have to, where they hadn't lost their job or had COVID-19 wasn't happening. That too was a major finding from the same survey. But the issues of abortion Latinos, healthcare, education, 
and particularly the economy, have been issues that were important before and remain important now. So whether or not Biden or Trump appeals to Latinos or reaches out to Latinos on those issues remains to be seen. But those were issues that, at least particularly with COVID-19 now, seem to particularly be hitting Latinos hard, anything around jobs, anything around the economy. One other thing I would add about the economic situation of Hispanics is that uh, prior to COVID-19 and prior to even 2019, we were already seeing, even in a, in a good economic environment, Latinos expressing concern about their personal finances, about jobs, and in government data showing that, for example, Latinos, particularly U.S.-born Latinos, hadn't yet quite recovered their earnings from prior to the Great Recession. So if you think about that, Latinos, while at a record unemployment rate, were already telling us in many of our polls, and government data showed this too, that they were feeling at least um, troubled by their personal finances and their situation uh, going into 2019. Their unemployment rate was at a record low? Yes, it, uh, just like it's been falling for the U it had been falling for the whole country, uh, at least looking at the data back to the mid 70s, the Latino unemployment rate in recent months up till COVID-19 have been approaching levels that we hadn't seen uh, all throughout that uh, uh, four or five decade series. Interesting. Now, talking about just the practical aspects of voting in a pandemic, how do you think social distancing and other measures might affect Latino voters as they plan to head to polls in the next few months and especially in November for the general elections? Mm, so it'll be interesting to see how things uh, change with regards to what states do to help voters vote in November. So it'll be interesting to see sort of where we are in, the, in September and in October as planning begins for and uh, uh, people begin to start to vote by mail, et cetera. For Latinos, this may be important in a number of ways, particularly because many Hispanics are oftentimes first-time voters. So outreach um, and people talking to people face-to-face -face is important to get the vote out. And the second part of this is, is that that voter outreach for Latinos is always so important because that's the way that many Latinos will vote for the first time. So you might see uh, outreach perhaps not being the same as it has been in previous elections. And so it could be that these new social distancing measures and whatever happens with voting might impact the Latino vote in a differential way, but partly because of the characteristics of the population. It's younger, oftentimes first-time voters, and that may present some challenges for people who worry about getting the vote out for Latinos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. There are just so many factors at play because, on the other hand, you might be able to look at it and say, well, if they're a younger population, maybe they're, you know, on social media more often and they might be more easy to reach through there during a pandemic. So it's interesting to think of all the different ways it could go. Yeah, but it, you know, when it comes to social media, yes, young Latinos are more likely to be uh, on social media, to use Instagram and Facebook, for example, more so than other young people. That is true. But it also is unclear to me that just because they're on social media, that if the campaign tries to reach out for the, with, to them there, how are they going to find them and are people really going to even engage with it? Might they see it in a positive way or a negative way? It's not clear to me that just because they're on social media, and this, people oftentimes ask this uh, or say this about Latinos, that hey, they're more engaged on social media, so that means we can reach them there. They have to want to be reached. And so I think it remains to be seen what impact even that might have outreach through social media to get Latinos, young Latinos out to vote. Maybe they're poised to be reached that way, but I'm not sure how much of an effect that would have. Yeah, as the Bloomberg campaign might be able to, <laughs> to tell them. <laughs> I mean, is there anything else that's been on your radar or that's popped up over the last month? I mean, obviously, so many things have been changing. You know, there might have been 
factors that are, again, being revealed more clearly or factors we didn't even have on our radar that now you're paying attention to? Or, you know, what do you think you'll be keeping your eye out for over the coming months? Yeah, I'm really interested to see what's going to happen with things around immigration. So how have some of the changes that the Trump administration has been um, uh, either um, talking about or he's signing an executive order about? Um, how are those going to impact Hispanic families? Um, I think it, uh, again, I think it remains to be seen, but also the question about undocumented immigrants uh, receiving benefits and how that differs across states. So, for example, California has done some things to provide benefits to undocumented immigrant workers, but nationally, as part of the CARES Act that the Congress passed a couple of weeks ago, that is something that is not part of the benefits package, that undocumented immigrants will not be able to benefit from anything related to people who've lost a job or any sort of uh, cash uh, a check that would have um, uh, a certain amount of benefits attached to it, depending on your income. And undocumented immigrants are not eligible for that. So it is interesting to see how different states are doing different things. And California seems to be doing uh, a lot around providing some sort of a cushion for undocumented immigrant workers. That's interesting. The other thing that you asked me, what else are you keeping an eye out on? Um, I'm keeping an eye on uh, worldwide uh, border closures. Um, what that means for immigrants, asylum seekers. And in Latin America, many countries like Guatemala, for example, have totally closed their borders. That has implications for who might be coming to the U.S. to either, say, seek asylum or to potentially be, uh, uh, to potentially come to the U.S. border and try to cross the U.S. border, no matter how they try to cross the border. So it is interesting that there have been these closures in many Latin American countries, complete border closures, that I wonder as things open up, how that will uh, how that will open up and what impact that might have on flows of immigrants. People who may be, for example, um, in a country like Guatemala trying to make their way to the United States, but now are unable to do so because they can't cross the border, the border is closed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I mean, this is obviously a totally different scenario, but I know when the pandemic first hit, there were people were talking about, you know, Venezuelans leaving their country and they were saying, oh, this pandemic could accelerate the flow. But in fact, what it seems to happen is Venezuelans who have gone to Colombia have found it's harder there. And now they're turning back to go back to Venezuela, even though you know, yeah. there still are just as few, if not less resources. But that's, it's changed the right. direction of some of those migration flows. And it's definitely happening in other parts of the world, too, where you're seeing migration flows uh, in some sense reverse or people trying to get home to be with families, I think, is the way that I might describe some of it. Um, but it's an across the board kind of thing. And then, of course, the most recent uh, news about um, the Gulf states and uh, COVID-19 and, and uh, migrant camps. Uh, that, I think, is also an emerging uh, uh, challenge, is how different countries um, address the needs of migrant workers who might be living in camps and might not be either there as a, um, you know, somebody who has a passport and is able to come to that country, they have some sort of a work permit, but it's a work permit going to be renewed, are they going to become unauthorized? Those are all things that I'm also keeping an eye out for and uh, information on. I'm curious, as I mean, first, just looking at Florida, which is one so important in the context of the national vote and the electoral college, but also has arguably, I'd say, the most unique Latino population in the country. So, and I know this is early, but I'm curious as to how you have seen that population shift over from now to 2016, now to 2012. Obviously, between the last election, one of the some of the biggest events we've had are a lot more Puerto Ricans have come to Florida and have voting rights automatically. Also, a lot of Venezuelans have um, emigrated from their country and landed in Florida. They don't have voting rights, but the issue 
of Venezuela has been very galvanizing to other populations in the state. Strategists have noted this explicitly as part of their strategy to use Venezuela with these populations. So I'm just curious as to, um, again, what if you have seen any indicators as a shift into how Florida Latinos are voting this year, what they're supporting. So Florida has the uh, nation's third largest Hispanic population overall. And when you take a look at those who are eligible to vote, who are at least 18 years of age in the U.S. citizen, you'll find that today about uh, 29% are Cuban. Another 29% or so are Puerto Rican. So those are two groups that are about equal in size. Um, and again, this is irrespective of their political party. Um, and then the remainder are from many other places with Colombians, Nicaraguans, Dominicans being the largest among those other groups. And interestingly, Mexicans as well. Now, Venezuelans are a group that has been growing. It's a population that's been growing in South Florida, but fewer than 60,000 are eligible to vote when you have an entire population in Florida that's over two and a half million that are eligible to vote and that are Hispanic. So that gives you some sense of the relative size of the Venezuelan uh, population that's eligible to vote. That is, again, 18 years of age in the U.S. citizen. And I want to point to some big, broad trends that have been happening since the 1980s among Florida's Hispanics. First, the population has been growing, and it's been growing steadily over the years. That's translated into more Latinos than ever registered to vote in this cycle. So there's more Latinos registered to vote than was the case in 2016. The second big trend is, um, while Cubans back in 1980 made up about half of the state's Hispanic population, um, today they make up only about a third of that, uh, of, of that population. So their population has grown, but because there's been such rapid growth of other groups, Cubans are not the the largest are they're not necessarily the largest group of Hispanics who are either eligible to vote or actually in the population, partly because Puerto Ricans have begun to match that population size. And statistically speaking, they're, they're generally similar. But Puerto Rican growth has come from two sources, uh, people who have moved from the island of Puerto Rico to Florida, and that's a significant number of people, particularly to central Florida. And then in the case of uh, people moving from the city or the area around uh, Metro New York, that has particularly helped to grow the Puerto Rican population in the central part of the state. And that's been helpful for Democrats as uh, voter registrations have grown because of that movement. Um, what's interesting though, is that there is a substantial Republican uh, uh, identified population among Hispanics, uh, in, among uh, Latino registered voters in Florida. And that's been the case for a while. And that's also something that makes Florida unique. So in 2016, Donald Trump won the majority of the Latino vote, about 54%. But that was a reversal of a of a eight-year trend where Barack Obama had won the Latino vote in 2008 and in 2012. And many thought that maybe Cubans are also going Democrat uh, as a result. But in this last election in 2016, uh, Cubans supported Trump. And that was a reversal of many years of trending more Democrat that we had seen. So it remains to be seen what will happen in 2020 um, how Cubans overall will vote in addition to what will happen with regards to those who've come from the island of Puerto Rico, many of whom are uh, Protestant evangelicals and may also identify more with the Republican Party than the Democratic Party, though we don't know that there's no hard data to point to this. But that may be something that uh, describes the Puerto Rican population in just such enough of a way that it might be beneficial for a candidate like Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you said this might be data that's kind of hard to get to, but I've heard people ask often of, given some of the president's rhetoric, and even, I mean, literally how he launched his campaign talking about Mexican immigrants coming into the country, why any Latino would support him. I mean, how would you explain that? Well, it does depend on the state and it does depend on the origins of the group. But, uh, for example, when you talk to 
uh, Latinos generally. Some of the same issues that are important to Americans are important to Hispanics, and particularly Hispanic voters. So in the case of, for example, the economy uh, or particularly health care and the cost of a college education, those are for Latino voters who oftentimes are young or young families uh, are issues that resonate with them just like it does for uh, the general U.S. public. But there are some issues which perhaps might be more might resonate more with some groups of Latinos in different states than in others. So, for example, in a state like Nevada, where about almost nine percent of all workers are undocumented immigrants, um, the issues around immigration and particularly a pathway to citizenship or something like the deferred action for childhood arrivals or these protections for dreamers um, that exist for young people who came to the U.S. when they were children, um, but came here in, illegally. Those sorts of programs draw more support or more interest and are part of the conversation in a way in Nevada. That's not the case, say, in Florida, where many of the issues there are around relations with, with, uh, with Cuba uh, or relations with uh, Puerto Rico. And so the issues like the, uh, a trade embargo against Cuba or a trade embargo against Venezuela are issues that relate or are identified as perhaps more important for that electorate than in, say, a state like California, which is largely Mexican. So there are some of these differences that I think are important to note, and it speaks to the diversity of the population. I'd also add that there are some Latinos who think that, that the issue of deportations and increasing the deportations of those in the country illegally should be an important policy goal for the U.S. government. In fact, half of Latinos say that in our poll from December. So not all Hispanics think the same, even on issues like immigration. So to characterize it as a single vote that's monolithic and should be um, should be uh, upset with or disappointed with the Trump's with uh, Trump's performance, uh, particularly in immigration. That doesn't necessarily capture the viewpoints of the entire population. Maybe the majority, but not everybody feels the same. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm curious about this deportation question. So you're finding that about Latinos are split about half and half on the deportation policy. Uh, whether deportation should be a policy goal for the U.S. government, yes. But uh, about 80% say that a pathway to citizenship for those in the country illegally should be an important goal mm -hmm. for the U.S. government. So there are some interesting patterns here. So we've also asked Hispanic uh, respondents whether or not the U.S. has done a good job, for example, at managing what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border, particularly with asylum seekers. And the majority of Hispanics say no, the U.S. government has done a poor job uh, in managing that crisis. But then when we ask about whether or not the U.S. has a responsibility to take in refugees and asylum seekers from countries like El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, more than half of Hispanics say no, the United States does not have such a responsibility. So there are diverse viewpoints on issues around immigration in this population, and not everybody feels the same. I would also add that our polling has shown that just like the U.S. public, we have found that Latino voters and Latinos overall do uh, split along partisan lines. So Latino Democrats overwhelmingly disapprove of the president's job performance, for example, and are dissatisfied with the direction of the country. But Latino Republicans approve of the president's job performance and think the country is going in the right direction. So it is a very polarized uh, electorate, just like it is among the U.S. public overall, even though most identify as Democrats. And I mean, this kind of brings up an interesting point, because for who knows how many years, well, probably about two decades, people, you know, the classic line has been, oh, demography is destiny. And the idea is just that as the Latino population grows in the United States, this will they will more vote for democrats i mean i think i get the sense that people are sort of tired of hearing that or at least among people who talk about these things 
Do you think we should kind of stop saying that altogether or still are there nonetheless big shifts? I think I'm thinking especially of a state like Texas. You know, if Texas is could ever turn blue, it would only be because of, I'd say, its Latino population. So yeah. should that still be on Democrats? You know, if the Democrats had a wish list or this thing of doing that, not saying it should or not, but um, or should we just kind of stop saying that demography is destiny altogether? It's an interesting question, and I don't know if that the characterization of the U.S. electorate has always worked. And in the case of Latinos, certainly at the national level, we've seen Latino support for different presidential candidates vary over the course of the last 20 years. So, for example, in 2004, George Bush, then President George Bush, who was running for re-election, Republican, uh, won uh, about 40 percent of the Latino vote. But that was a high, a recent high. If you go back to the 80s, uh, 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 then President Ronald Reagan won about 35% of the Latino vote. But then you come to the 2008 and 2012 elections and Barack Obama won more than 70% of the Latino vote. So it does vary from, from election cycle to election cycle, reflecting the interest in specific candidates. And that's true of the general U.S. public as well. Candidates do matter for determining the level of support people will get. But unlike the African-American electorate, the Latino electorate does vary in its viewpoints about a number of issues and its support for Democratic or Republican candidates. And seeing 2016's results is one indication of that. It doesn't require a majority necessarily of Latino voters to support a candidate like Donald Trump. It just requires enough to shape the outcomes in different elections in different states. Even so, when we talk about the Latino vote, it does lean towards the Democratic Party. Latinos see the Democratic Party as a party that has more concern for the community than the Republican Party. And I think those are important things to keep in mind. So while maybe a third of, I'm sorry, about 30% of Latino registered voters might identify or lean towards the Republican Party, about two thirds identify with or lean towards the Democratic Party. And those patterns have been pretty consistent over the last uh, 15 to 20 years or so in terms of how people identify. Um, but again, the Latino vote is not necessarily monolithic, um, but it does lean towards the Democratic Party. So perhaps more Latinos will shape things into the future. Uh, one of the things that I would add is when we talk about something like um, a Texas and how Texas is perhaps uh, becoming more purple, maybe even more blue. Um, one of the things I think that's important to note there is while Latinos are, are part of that change and a part of that story, the state has also attracted people from all over the country. So there has been a growth in the number of, for example, people from California. Californians have tended to be more Democrat leaning. And if you look at how Texas is, the population in Texas is changing, it is drawing migrants from all over the country. And that too may be contributing to the changes we see in Texas in terms of politics. But it's important to note that Latinos have generally not heard from candidates and that's a reason they cite for not turning out to vote. Uh, again, something that's true of many other groups of Americans, not just Latinos, Asian Americans, for example, young people as well. But it's a challenge for getting out the vote. You want you, people want to be asked to participate. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that is a perfect follow up. I had been uh, doing some research earlier about specifically the Latino turnout rate, because usually it's cited as being about around 40 percent, about on par with Asian Americans and about 10 to 20 points below white and black voters. But there's an interesting thing in that if you look at the turnout rate among registered voters across all groups, people turn out between 75 to 80 percent. So it seems like the key to getting Latinos to turn out is one, having a candidate that they're motivated by, but then also making sure just that they're registered to vote. Is there like, is that what you've seen too? Is there, are there other factors that you might add to that? 
So for the U.S., the way that the our systems work, the way our voting system works, is the first step is you must register to vote with your state authority. So, uh, for example, in California, you have to register to vote before you can cast a vote. Um, then once you register, then you're eligible to vote in an election. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind here. So it's a two-step process. Um, the challenge with Latinos is that youth is such a big part of the story. For example, every four years, about three million plus Latinos turn 18. That's uh, a large number, and it's also a large share of the Latino electorate. So, for example, you'll find that maybe almost half of all Latino eligible voters are age 35 or younger. That means many are first-time voters in any election cycle, and the need to register them and then the need to show them where to go vote is perhaps more present than it is among other groups of Americans. So by contrast, for example, only about one in five white eligible voters are millennials or younger, age 35 or younger. So that gives you some sense of the relative size of first-time voter challenges for Latinos. Uh, and so when we talk about the Latino vote, that's, a, I think, an, always an ongoing challenge because every election cycle, another three million become eligible to vote just by turning 18. Uh, and uh, that's always a challenge to get folks registered. It is important to register. That's the first step you got to do. So Latinos are less likely to be registered than um, than uh, other Americans. But even among registered voters, there still is a little bit of a gap in turnout, whether Latino Latino compared to white. It's a smaller gap, but there is still a gap there. And that does reflect perhaps outreach from campaigns or uh, general non, um, uh, non-campaign related get out the vote efforts by organizations that are trying to get Latinos out the vote. Mm-hmm. And I realize we um, we haven't yet mentioned one of the biggest stats about the Latino vote this year, which is that in 2020, for the first time ever, Latinos will be the largest block of minority voters in the country. They'll be uh, 13.3%, and that is up from 7.4% in 2000. So it's not just, oh, how do you reach out in general, but this is, I mean, again, the largest minority block in the country. By our projections, 32 million Hispanics will be eligible to vote in this year's election cycle. That is an adult U.S. citizen. May not all be registered to vote, but that's a record number. Um, it also puts the Latino vote in a position to be bigger than the next largest group, which is African Americans. And that's a first. The Latinos in a presidential election have never been the largest non-white group to be eligible to vote. Now, it remains to be seen if more Latinos will turn out to vote than African Americans, because African Americans turn out at much higher rates. But this is really, I think, an important milestone for the Latino electorate. Um, Latinos have also been voting in record numbers, even though their voter turnout rate might be flat. Part of the reason for that is that there's so much growth in the number that we have a growing number of people eligible to vote. And yet we also have record numbers turnout each year. So turnout has been rising as well, largely off of the, uh, off of the growth in the population. So it's, a good, it's an important year, and we'll see how things uh, shape up. Our polling does show that Latinos are very interested in this election. Um, That's uh, something we've seen in previous election cycles as well, to some extent. But we'll see how things play out as the election uh, continues um, and whether or not that interest remains with all the things going on around the coronavirus, the economy, and so many other things. I ran a few numbers, and from what I saw, it seems like in 2016, in just the Texas primaries, both Democrat and Republican, um, I calculated about 700,000 Latinos voted and in across the two primaries, and this year it was over a million. Um, and again, that's with lower Republican turnout because their primary is not contested. And 2018, I think, is an important year to point to because 2018 saw a surge in voter participation across the board, across all racial and ethnic groups. But we saw Latino voter participation that rivaled 
uh, what we saw during presidential elections in 2008, 2012. That's interesting because the uh, Latino electorate has traditionally voted at very, very low rates in midterm elections. But it only goes to show you that Americans generally and Latinos specifically are anxious and excited about voting and participating in this election because there are many things that are on their minds and of course that are concerning them. Uh, and I think that's not unique to Latinos, but it's something that you see happening across the board. Mm-hmm. And it, it's funny, I feel like we keep kind of coming back to all the ways that just the Latino vote mimics the national vote. But as you know, more results come in as we get, I mean, when we get closer to the general, are there any particular indicators or factors that you will be looking for in polls that come out about the Latino vote in particular, that markers that you think are telling? I think it'll be interesting to see first, um, our candidates reaching out to Latinos. That will be important to see. Second, I'm interested to see what level of support various organizations will be getting to mobilize the Latino vote. And these are nonpartisan organizations, but how much support and where are they putting their resources into? The third thing I think that'll be important to see how much interest there is from Latinos are what the issues turn out to be. Finally, though, I do think that the battleground state map will matter a lot in how much interest we get from Latinos about participating in the election. Well, is California going to be a battleground state? I don't know. Is Texas going to be a battleground state? Maybe. If these states end up getting a lot of attention in some way, that might end up having Latinos get a lot of outreach from the campaigns themselves, which could have an impact on the Latino vote. But I don't know. A lot, I think, still remains to be seen in the uncertainty around what's happening with the coronavirus, with the economic slowdown, and also uh, where things are with healthcare. Those are all things I think that are going to matter for this uh, group, just like it does for the U.S. public. What is one thing you would hope to see in media coverage of the Latino vote? What are questions that you would like to see the media asking about uh, this voting bloc? It'll be interesting to see how the Latino vote gets characterized in this coming election. If it's just a, a group that cares about immigration, or if the many issues that might be important to this group, such as the cost of health care, um, uh, are, are characterized in a way that is um, capturing the challenges that Latino families are facing, being able to afford health care. Many are uninsured, for example, particularly those who are unauthorized. Um, but it is interesting. It'll be interesting to see how the group gets characterized and also um, which candidates, how candidates reach out to Latinos. Um, those are the things I think uh, it'll be interesting to see how it evolves as the media covers this group in the coming months. Mm-hmm. And in terms of outreach, what are some either examples of good outreach or just types of outreach that you think are, have been effective? So I don't know about which have been effective, but some, some groups that have done a lot of outreach and them in a couple of different ways. One is, for example, Voto Latino, which is a group that is focused on mobilizing young Latinos. Um, they've been around for many election cycles and have played important roles in, uh, for example, primaries uh, in Nevada. Um, in both this election cycle and in 2016 and before. And that's, I think, one group I think to keep an eye out on the focus on young Latinos. The other groups that I think are important to take a look at are groups that are uh, helping Hispanic immigrants who are eligible to become U.S. citizens to do so. And that's important because when you take a look at the sources of growth in the Hispanic electorate, about one quarter of the change is usually coming from immigrants who naturalize and become U.S. citizens and become eligible to vote in any election cycle. Um, Oftentimes, the decision to naturalize may be linked to uh, effort to get out the vote. And frankly, Hispanic immigrants vote at higher rates than the U.S. born. So I think many groups like Naleo, for example, and Univision, who have 
efforts to naturalize people in place, and they're not oftentimes linked to an election, but are, are still always there, may play a role in helping to shape that part of the Hispanic electorate. Let me, let me say one thing here that I think might be important to know. Mm-hmm. When you talk about the demographics of Latino voters, one important demographic I think to talk about is the share that are U.S. born. Most, about 75%, are born in the United States. So when we talk about Latino registered voters, that is largely a U.S. born group. Yes, many, be, many may be the children of immigrant parents, but they were born in the United States. That's different than the general adult population of Hispanics, which is about half foreign born. So when we talk about reaching Latino voters, reaching them in Spanish is important, but that's not the only way to reach the group. Many are English speaking first, and that's an important element that I think oftentimes many um, may not talk about. And focusing on just Spanish speakers, while important, isn't necessarily always um, the best way to reach this group. You know, the other thing we haven't talked about is when we talk about this population in the United States that trace the roots to Latin America and Spain, the terms that we use, whether Hispanic or Latino or Latinx, oftentimes also may be linked to the ways in which people see their politics. But for the most part, our surveys over the years have shown that most people prefer to be identified with their countries of origin, not Hispanic, not Latino, not Latinx. So I think that's an important thing to note here, and again, about the diversity of the population that while we call it one thing called the Latino vote, many people in this group oftentimes see themselves as more associated with their backgrounds, where their ancestors are from, than necessarily some pan-ethnic group. I mean, definitely in New York, the uh, Puerto Ricans and Dominicans do not want to be lumped together in the same group. That is a storied rivalry. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah, that's that's great. And uh, sometimes uh, uh, Mexican origin Hispanics who have been in the U.S. for five or six, families have been in the U.S. for five or six generations don't want to be associated with immigrants. Well, that's everything I have for today. So again, thank you so much for talking with us. We'll be keeping an eye on these issues going forward. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Karin Zissis. This episode was produced by Louisa Lemmy. The music in this podcast was recorded at America Society in New York City. You can watch and listen to concerts at musicoftheamericas.org. We appreciate you taking the time to listen and hope you enjoyed this podcast. Your reviews help us spread the word. So give us five stars, subscribe, and share on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.